Welcome to the official podcast channel of SIREN, the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network based at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded during a virtual event and has been lightly edited for ease of listening. To get us started in imagining new realities, I am very pleased to introduce now our opening plenary in which we will be learning about the concept of abolition. To guide us through this conversation and topic, I am so very pleased to introduce Dr. Rhea Boyd. Dr. Boyd is a pediatrician, a public health advocate, and a scholar who focuses on the relationships between structural racism, inequity, and health. So without further ado, Dr. Boyd, I'm now turning it over to you. Hi, y'all. Thank you so much for having me today. I am thrilled to be here and honestly just excited to get to have this conversation with scholars who I so respect. So today we have with us on our panel two scholars who I want to begin by having them introduce themselves. We have Professor Osagi Oba. Oh God, just tell me. Professor Osagi from Berkeley. Tell us how to correctly say your last name. Osagi is a dear friend who honestly, I have said his name incorrectly for years. (laughs) Hi, everyone. My name is Osagi Obasagi, and I'm a professor of law and professor of bioethics at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you, Osagi. And then we also have with us Darian Wallace from Stanford. Darian, would you like to introduce yourself as well? Yes, my name is uh, Darion Wallace. I am a third year graduate school student in the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, studying race, inequality, and language. Amazing. So today we're talking about how abolition and abolitionism relates to social care in medicine. Social care in medicine being the idea that we in healthcare should do something about the social inequities that lead to higher rates of death and disease in community, particularly in communities of color and result in racial health inequities or uneven rates of death and disease within communities of color. And so we're gonna think about how abolition can relate to a path forward for us to think about what healthcare's role is in addressing social inequities. But before we start, I think it's important for us to start on kind of an even field, thinking about what abolition means. And so I wanna start by just asking each of our panelists to share what their working definition of abolition is and how it relates to their work. Osagi, let's start with you. Sure, so thank you for that uh, introduction. So I think abolition, uh, the conversation on abolition is at a moment now where folks are working with different uh, definitions and frameworks. And so I'm glad we're starting from this standpoint. So I'll I'll share how I think about abolition, and I'm sure we'll talk more about different perspectives throughout the next few minutes. Um, so I think of abolition as an opportunity to have a uh, different imagination for what the future can hold. It's an opportunity to assess existing institutions and practices, understand their limitations and how they're often steeped in uh, past uh, histories and behavior that have been quite stigmatizing to vulnerable populations, and opportunity to think about what Uh, or how we can reimagine these institutions or engagements in a way that is free from those past engagements in a way that is truly kind of based upon notions of fairness, equity, and inclusion. So I think about abolition in terms of how do we kind of enliven our imaginations to have a better world and how do we remake institutions that have been historically quite fraught. So institutions like law enforcement, uh, medicine itself, uh, biomedical research, these are all institutions that have remarkably 
unfortunate uh, histories with race and white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity um, that can and should be reimagined in a way that's uh, much more inclusive of all people. So I think abolition is that framework that allows us to free ourselves from that past and reimagine a better future. Thank you. Darian, how, how do you think about it within your work and maybe even in relation to what Osagie just shared? Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, a general definition of abolition is a disruption of the myriad of violences um, that are experienced by those deemed to be marginal to society and how it functions. And so I think that what it calls is for us to pause and to think about the way in which we orient our relationships to one another, the way in which power is negotiated amongst institutions and people, um, and as a way as a, a please trying to think about uh, interruption in the day-to-day and the mundane ways in which we think about um, how oppression may show up in different spheres. And so for us within education, we think about it as a separation between schooling and education. Most people, when they have a call for abolition, they say that we would like to abolish schools, which usually gets people up in arms and thinking, what do you mean you want to do away with schools if you don't have schools anymore? But Thinking about schooling as a place that oftentimes has a, holds a lot of violence and holds a lot of dehumanization, really trying to reimagine the way in which we orient learning for our young students. Um, and it may mean like bringing some things and some elements of schooling to the fore, and it may mean letting go of very traditional things that we are used to holding on to, whether that be standardized testing, whether that be traditional classrooms and having larger size, larger sizes of classrooms. Um, really just taking a pause to be able to think about what are ways that we can reimagine the way of doing schooling. And so in a general way, it's a disruption of violences in the terms of education as a field and in the research that I do. We think about it as a way of dismantling the schooling structure and rebuilding something anew. You've said a lot of words and terms that I want us to think more about today. I'm just going to name some of the ones. We're definitely going to think about imagination, radical imagination at that. What are the extents we could go to to think what could be in place of what we have right now in terms of social care and health care? You recently just said disruption, dismantling, letting go, reorienting, violence. Osagi, you brought up white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity. So we're going to think through just for a minute kind of the relationship between these things and what led folks to abolition. So, right, the history of abolition in the United States began with abolition of slavery as both an economic and political system and backed up by ideology of white supremacy and how that then became baked into the functioning of our political economy, which some folks call racial capitalism in this country, where we place people in a racial hierarchy so that we can also justify um, extracting resources from some people and their labor and giving those resources to other people. That way of setting up our political economy has created enduring forms of inequality built on one of the longest standing forms of inequality in our country, which is racial inequality. And so if we think about racial inequality as the roots of some of the problems that social care and healthcare is trying to address, can each of you more specifically say how you think the definition of abolition might specifically address social care as kind of a solution to inequality in healthcare? Yeah, so I think um, we need to have a very blunt conversation about this. When talking about issues around healthcare and medical professionals, we have to understand that oftentimes medical professionals have served as the police. You know, they have had they have engaged in behavior to, in a way, put their patients um, in this in the direct line uh, or direct kind of sight of law enforcement 
because of behaviors that they feel to be need to be somehow treated by the criminal justice system. So we have to acknowledge that. And we also have to acknowledge the fact that even when uh, medical professionals aren't directly acting in that capacity, there are ins institutional alliances between medicine and law enforcement that allow law enforcement to act with the impunity that we see. So that is to say that we often justify certain behaviors by law enforcement through medical and scientific terms of, of human difference that are rooted in the very form of racial capitalism that you just described. So we have to be blunt about that. And we have to acknowledge that. We often think of science and medicine as these kind of neutral or apolitical engagements with health and healthcare. And that's simply not the history of the field or, or the profession. And we have to have an honest conversation about the ways in which medical training and the knowledge of medicine is used to serve the interests of law enforcement and other institutions that need to be part of the conversation around abolition. And it's only then that we can start to have the conversation about what would a radical imagination or reimagination of medicine itself do in service of this new uh, world where people aren't treated in those ways. And so I think that's where we kind of have to start the conversation. And from there, we can then kind of think about what it means to kind of put in place new structures that truly focus on the health of all people. So powerful. I think what you've described that happens in healthcare is a bit distinct from how it happens in education. I think you're absolutely right, Osani. In healthcare, for a long time, maybe honestly, or until 2020, when we had our own bit of a kind of reckoning around racism and police violence in particular, we were loathed as a field to actually address the ways that racism has always lived here, the ways that we as a field profit off of racism, the way that scientific advances have been made off of the bodies and the suffering of some over others, particularly Black women. And so when we don't talk about those things, then we miss our role in addressing it. And we say, oh, maybe we in healthcare could help give other services to other people as a way to fix things instead of saying, actually, maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with the way that we operate. I think that's different than how it works in education because in, in education, right, that was one of the, the early kind of battlefields, for lack of a better term, for racial justice, that post-slavery, during Reconstruction, when the period after the Civil War, when we were trying to piece the country back together again and something had to be done with all of these newly freed, formerly enslaved folks, education was a huge pillar of the Freedmen's Bureau. How will we educate this workforce that we have forced to be uneducated? And so starting back in Reconstruction, we began to have the beginning seedlings of public education. And then during the civil rights movement, right, we had desegregation. Like education has always been a place where these conversations have been happening. Can you share more about where education is now? Because in that respect, perhaps education is further along than us in understanding their role and contributing to inequality. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate you having the historical bend and arc on how we begin to think about the role of education in producing not only the citizen, but what other purposes it may have. And I think for a lot of Black education scholars and for a lot of Black educators, the purpose of education has been more than just thinking about getting a job and going to the job market, education has been a tool for liberation and for freedom. Um, prior to, you know, Brown v. Board, prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, literacy was literally an opportunity to be able to like claim one's humanity and to be able to be a political battle in order to be able to secure rights and to be able to live a life that allows for one to have its own autonomy. And so, I mean, I think 
the project of education, particularly within communities of color, when I think about education in Black communities and Indigenous communities and Latin communities, it's much more than just the production of the citizen or the production of entering the labor market. And so, yes, these conversations have always been a part of education scholarship and Black educational thought in particular. And the conversation continues to expand and continues to, to grow. I think there's an interesting intersection between education scholars and Black studies that's happening. And there's a, a really a disavowal of anti-Blackness that's happening within education. But I would caution the amount of optimism that we have. I think that there are conversations that are happening, but I don't think that they are able to overhaul the structural uh, level of anti-Blackness that we still see within the education sphere and apparatus. And so, yes, there are conversations around like, what do we do around the resources that are given to majority Black schools or where schools that they have majority students of color, but we haven't necessarily seen the a different um, set of power relations come into play when it comes to education and how it unfolds with the curriculum, with the amount of teachers that are, the type of teachers that are recruited to go into particular schools. And there are still, I think, many fronts in the, in the material conditions of students of color that we're still fighting to change for. Thank you. So bringing us back to this concept of abolition, I want to refer to a way to think about it that was offered by Derricka Purnell in her book, Becoming Abolitionists. I'm going to like toss up a lot of books during this session because I know people are always, how can we read and learn more? Here's one way, buy this book, buy this wonderful Black Scholar. Okay, so what she offers is that you can't fix or reform systems that are not broken. And healthcare, I think this term or this like concept is often attributed to Don Berwick, who used to head up CMS, who said, we are getting the outcomes in healthcare that our system is designed to produce. It's a way of saying healthcare isn't broken and racial health inequities aren't evidence of a brokenness. Instead, they're evidence of the functioning of our system as designed. And if this is how healthcare is designed, then how does us as a system now trying to offer, for example, food pantries inside clinics to address hunger as a cause of disease and morbidity and mortality from illnesses, maybe like diabetes, how is that a solution to a bigger problem in healthcare? I don't know if I'm articulating this right, but I want us to very directly and frankly confront what social care looks like right now to try to get as quickly as we can to, is that an answer? Is it enough? Is it even legitimate? That we in healthcare think that we could just start to package some social services for people as if that's a fix for what actually causes inequality. I'll give one more quote from this beautiful book. She says, please manage inequality by keeping the dispossessed from the owners, the black from the white, the homeless from the housed, the beggars from the employed. Reforms only make police polite managers of inequality. Abolition makes police and inequality obsolete. I read this because I think we in healthcare, honestly, have become polite managers of inequality. We say, if you come get healthcare from us, we'll give you something to eat when you come to our building. We're not going to do anything about the wage disparities that exist within the industry that you work in. We're not going to do anything about the pollution that's clogging your lungs and bringing you to our facility. We'll filter our air, but we're not messing with the corporations that you work with that are poisoning you in your own community and in your own workplace. How can we come to confront even the idea that providing social care 
is it all sufficient? Darian, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think that you gestured towards something that I want to highlight and pull to the fore. I think a lot of abolitionist scholars think about their work in two buckets. You have reformist reforms, which you may be able to think of as like temporary band-aids that go on to situations or social ills that are out there. So the idea of food pantries and clinics, that's a reformist reform. It's a small thing that you can do incrementally until we make a larger change in the system. And then you have non-reformist reforms, which are just changing complete ideologies and logics that are at play. And so if we're talking about dismantling anti-Blackness, that isn't something that I think I will see in my lifetime, but there are things that people need to do in the in-between time because there are resources and there are conditions in which people need help and being able to navigate in this contemporary moment. And so I think it's a combination of the two, non-reformist reforms and reformist reforms. And then in addition, I mean, I think an abolitionist lens and orientation to our work would get us to move beyond what um, some people may call like liberal humanism and being able to think that we do everything by ourselves and we do this in a silo sector and section. And so what does it mean for us to begin to think about cross-pollinating with law and health and education? What would it mean for us to be able to think about social care and community schools and being able to provide resources and health care um, for students and using schools as an avenue to be able to extend the reach of the hospital and extend the reach of the healthcare sector? Just having an abolitionist orientation begins to allow for new possibilities. And we talked about this radical imagination of how we orient our work with one another and don't continue to think that the ways in which education functions and the ways in which health and law function are all in silos and begin to think how do we work together in unison to create some levels of change, whether they be reformist or non-reformist reforms. Yeah, no, I think this is a really important conversation. And, you know, I think one of the tensions around this type of social interventions within a healthcare capacity is that it's usually a public health model within a clinical context. And there's a tension there in terms of what it means for uh, medicine itself to respond to these public health interventions. And so what I mean by that is that medicine traditionally focuses on individual patients, whereas public health focuses on populations. And so this kind of social care approach is really taking a public health approach to understanding the context that often drives health outcomes. And so, for example, oftentimes many of the health problems that we have can be solved by providing more social resources, such as providing food pantries and other types of social and structural interventions. And that's amazing work. But the problem or the tension arises when kind of medicine starts to see that as an individual solution and doesn't respond to these types of social interventions with its own more kind of uh, structural analysis or framework. So that is to say that we think of these kind of these uh, these interventions as kind of individual level uh, solutions, um, but medicine needs to have a much more robust response than merely having food pantries within a clinical setting. There has to be other ways in which medicine embraces the public health sensibilities and frameworks within the way that it provides clinical care. I love this because now we're getting into some of the tension between incrementalism and, Darren, I believe what you termed for us is non-reformist reforms. I love this introduction of new terms. That term is new to me. And what Osagi brought us to, which is the tension between individual and population level interventions. And sometimes for the individual, I think we become comfortable offering the individual an incremental solution. Derica says in her book, the police were a placebo, calling the police, and she's talking about her own experience calling the police in her neighborhood because she said they called the police for everything. She said calling them felt like something, as the legal scholar Michelle Alexander explains, and something can feel like everything when your other option is nothing. I think the other ways that we can perhaps see, the ways that we call on not just carceral logics, but the, we actually call the carceral system 
into our healthcare system through what some people might call social care is through the child welfare system. I, as a pediatrician, am mandated reporter. Teachers in the education system are mandated reporters. If we see a child that we are concerned is being neglected or abused in their home, it is required by law that we report them to what we call child protective services here in California, but more broadly might be called the child welfare system. And there is work that has been done by scholar Dorothy Roberts to think about what abolition looks like in child welfare. And so I just want us to turn to it for a moment because I think it might be useful to how we think abolition might apply to social care more broadly. So first she points out early in her book and here the book we're looking at is Torn Apart, everyone pick this up, Torn Apart, Dorothy Roberts, absolutely brilliant about abolition of our child welfare system. The first thing she acknowledges that if our child welfare system were truly devoted to protecting children and promoting their welfare, why aren't the vast majority of its clients white? Right? She says, the United States has consistently reserved its best resources for white folks. Black people have had to fight tooth and nail to gain access to services meant for whites only. Conversely, the institutions where government has confined black people like segregated schools, housings, prisons, we might also say healthcare, which we know is segregated by insurance status and therefore by race, have been substandard. Why would this state system that takes children from their parents be any different? She goes on to talk about how distinct the racial health inequities or the racial inequities that exist in the child welfare system are that I think mirror the racial health inequity to see in our healthcare system. She says, more than one in 10 Black children in America will be forcibly separated from their parents and placed in foster care by the time they reach 18. One out of every 10. We also know there was that study back in 2018 published in APHA that said one out of every two Black children will be the subject and their family will be the subject of a child protective services investigation in their lifetime by the time they reach 18. One out of every two. And so what she goes through in this book is to talk about how we should retell the historical narrative to center the re-enslavement of Black children through apprenticeship to white folks as America's first child welfare system. Here she's talking about what happened immediately post-slavery in that Reconstruction period where Black children were basically separated from their families again and placed into these apprenticeships, they were called, where they would work for free for white families, the same way they would have under slavery, just now, post-slavery, it was called apprenticeship. And that that was the early model of both separating black families and having white parents rear black children as what was considered better for them. I think we in healthcare don't confront our relationship to the ways that social care has been anti-black from its origins. And I think Dorothy Roberts is probably the leading scholar to articulate that, at least in terms of the child welfare system. And so she's calling for abolition of that system. If we today think about what that means for our field's relationship to other forms of social care, and I'm just going to put this on the table, are there things that, as Dorothy Roberts is calling for us to just get rid of, like child welfare systems, are there some things that just gotta go? And if so, what are those things that actually we're not just waiting to reimagine it, we need to get rid of it now as the beginning of the solution for how anti-Blackness continues to live in healthcare or perhaps in education. Osagi, what things should we 
just off top, gotta go. Well, where do we start? You know, I think one thing we have to think about is the role of police in hospitals and what that does for both clinical care and for families. So to offer the other perspective, you know, many medical professionals have articulated a need for some type of security within a hospital settings, particularly emergency care, because oftentimes the patients that they're seeing are involved in some type of ongoing um, activity that can be a part of some type of you know dangerous or antisocial relationship. Um, that's certainly important. But there has to be an imagination about how to secure these facilities without bringing in police officers due to the unbelievably unethical and inappropriate engagements that police have participated in while serving in that capacity. So we have to really reimagine that. We also have to think about the ethical obligations and duties that medical professionals have to their patients when they may be involved in some type of investigation. And so we've seen too many examples where, quite frankly, physicians and nurses have served as cops. That's the only way to put it, right? They have surreptitiously taken evidence from patients, run analyses on them and give them to law enforcement as part of evidence. Um, this type of stuff happens every day. And that type of behavior just has to stop. And that's um, the part of the community of medical professionals to think about and to be explicit about their ethical duties to their patients and to not to serve in a surveilling or law enforcement capacity um, as part of their care. I love that. Police-free hospitals, y'all. And for folks who want to think more about police abolition, this is a great book, The End of Policing, Alex Vitale. Darian, what has to go? If you can think of healthcare examples, I would love it, but also in education, off top, what just needs to go? Yeah, I mean, I think in education, most folks would be drawn to some of the spectacular scenes. We think about over-disciplining, we think about search and seizures in schools, police, police dogs, metal detectors as like these carceral ways that show up in our schools that prevent students from being able to be their whole selves and to have an uh, opportunity to learn. But I also want to like draw attention to as a scholar at UC Berkeley, his name is Darius Gordon, just released a piece on Afro-pessimism in education. Also some of the mundane things that happen in schools that we begin to just normalize. We begin to think about the lack of sleep that students get if they have to travel on a bus to get to further schools. We have to think about the gas that parents have to spend to get to teacher conferences when schools are not um, in their communities and they have to travel far distances from them. Thinking about the ways in which like the textbooks are there and the, and the knowledge and the racial logics that students are taking up in those. And so to me, those are like some of the subtle things that oftentimes go under the rug that I would call for an absolute stop in um, and a reorientation. And also, of course, the spectacular instances that we think of um, when we think of the carceral logics and the police and the ways in which they show up in our schools. When it comes to healthcare, I mean, I think one thing that comes to the top of mind is, and I don't know necessarily like how to, but I want to name it, the inability for Black bodies and Black people to show up and to be able to express themselves in their healthcare systems. There's always a level of mistrust or like that their pain is not being recognized or their humanity is not being recognized. And so figuring out some ways or systems to be able to have Black people who are moving through medical systems to be able to be acknowledged and being able to say that like this is something that is hurting on me and it's not going to go away with the aspirin or a nap, but like this needs to be seriously interrogated and I want to be able to be taken up as a full person in this moment with my doctor or the, the practitioner that I'm engaging with is something yeah, that comes to the fore when I think about healthcare. I'm getting like all the feels over here. This honestly might get to be an emotional conversation. So police-free schools, police-free healthcare experiences for people who are interested in more about police-free schools, the push out, 
Monique Morris, an excellent book about the overcriminalization of particularly Black girls in schools. Folks in our chat and the Q&A have shared things. People said health insurance needs to go. It absolutely needs to go, right? Healthcare for all. We know that health insurance is a reliable way to segregate healthcare by insurance status, which is a reliable way to segregate it by racial and ethnic group and to segregate the quality. I want to start to turn to some of the questions that have been put in the Q&A because these are also brilliant. My wonderful colleague from 211, Tanisha Harrell, has offered a great question, which is, she says she's curious how the panelists think we should address some of the language of abolition being hijacked to misrepresent the intentionality of what was just expressed. And this is this is always the threat, right? That as we develop language and approaches for us to address problems of inequality, that those terms are turned against us so we can't use them again in the same way. And so we're constantly also having to recreate language and re-understand so that we can continue to make sure that we're targeting the right problems. So how can we address the ways that people talk about abolition now in the most simple ways, right? Oh, you're just gonna get rid of all of the police immediately is how people always say it. What would we do, right? How would we have no police instantly? How would we have police-free hospitals and police-free schools? Um, as if that's the only way to think about abolition. Have you guys come across that type of an approach and how do you address this hijacking of our language? Yeah, I mean, immediately I'm drawn to a Toni Morrison quote in which she says, the function, the very serious function of racism is distraction. It keeps you from doing your work. It keeps you explaining over and over again your reason for being. And so with that like orientation to the world, I would just say, we have to just focus on the things that are important here. And like, sure, there's opportunities for engaging people and trying to educate people. But if we begin to feel like it's overhauling the very serious work of abolition in each of our respective fields, then I would say there's a, a point in which we just have to disengage some of the like disingenuous conversations that are happening out there. If there's a genuine inquiry and a level of exchange in which people want to learn and want to know, absolutely we should come to the fore and come to the table and try to make sure that like the perspectives of abolitionism are understood. But if these are folks that are just being extremely confrontational in the ways in which they're thinking about it and disingenuous and dishonest, um, I would say that it's being a distraction from the work that we have to do. No, I, I agree 100%. I think so many of these questions come from bad faith. And I think if they, these questions are in bad faith, we don't need to respond to those. At the same time, there are people who have not been fully exposed to ways of thinking, or these ways of thinking. And I think uh, we have to start meeting people where they are and be patient with people and to help people get to where they need to be. And so we have to manage that tension between, you know, as Darian was saying, disengaging from bad faith, um, but also being able to have the time and patience to engage with people who might be on the other side of the political spectrum, but generally want to learn more and to meet them where they uh, happen to be on their own journey and help them get to a place where they can fully, at the very least, understand what's being articulated by um, this perspective and at best, you know, join the effort. And so I think part of our work is being able to quickly distinguish between those two <laughs> and to be able to, um, you know, be as, as inclusive as we can. Folks, Charlie Gilfoyle, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Charlie, has asked if we can lift up 
specific examples of abolition that might be happening in our fields. I'll just preface this by saying, Charlie, police-free schools and police-free hospitals is happening. That's work that's happening here in the Bay Area. It happened at Oakland Unified Schools just two years ago, where they voted the school board to remove police after 10 years of advocacy by Black Organizing Project, which is a coalition of parents and students in OUSD. Police-free hospitals conversations are happening at San Francisco General, now called Zuckerberger, San Francisco General, I believe. So some of the things that we've already named are examples of abolitionist practices that are already happening, but are there other ones that you guys want to highlight? And then I just want to put in one more question next to that one. So the first question is just a brief example of abolition, you know, that's already happening. And then Angela Hagen, I believe, I hope I'm also pronouncing your name correctly, asks, is our sector even the right one to try to address these broader political determinants of health, which is a question that we often get. Is this our problem to fix? Uh, so first, what are some examples of abolition just briefly? And then is this even our problem to fix? So I, I think the examples you, you provided, Rhea, are really important and great. I'll, I'll provide a, an example that's not quite a good fit, but I think it's relevant. So one of my major concerns is the role of the university in these conversations. And my primary appointment is at the law school here at Berkeley. I also have an appointment in the joint medical program and the School of Public Health. And I also have an affiliation with the School of Social Welfare. So this is to say that I interact with graduate students from many departments. And one thing that is striking to me is the ways in which, in particular, the first year, first year curriculum and all these disciplines engage in forms of training that build in problematic ways of seeing the world that creates the foundation for these folks to become professionals and go out into the world and replicate some of the problems that we've been talking about. So this is something that starts early, starts in how we train people in the very first semester that they come on campus. And so there's an important role for the university to play an affirmative role and rethinking the way that we treat the next generation of professionals in these fields so that when they become physicians, uh, when they become lawyers, when they become um, people who work in the field of social welfare, that they hit the ground running with a framework that is dead set on erasing the problems and rebuilding and reimagining the way that we should move forward. And so one of the examples that I've started to see now that, that there are a number of law schools, including here at Berkeley, that are requiring all the students to take a course on race and racism before they graduate. Now, that's a small step, and it's not necessarily tearing down some of the problematic pedagogical frameworks that happen in law. But at the very least, it is creating a space for all students as a graduation requirement to engage a semester-long conversation about racism, race, and the law that at the very least will allow them to kind of see the complexity of these issues and to think more deeply about the law um, than they might receive in some of their other classes. And so I think those type of kind of pedagogical interventions are important. There's opportunities for similar type of interventions in every uh, professional uh, school uh, across the field. Um, and so I would like to see more of that complexity in addition to rethinking just basic questions of what the first year curriculum looks like in all these professional disciplines so that it can be a much more thoughtful, diverse, and inclusive experience rather than an experience that sets the stage for what often can be a very problematic career in many of these fields. I love that. Starting with education as the place where we all become more prepared so that we don't continue to reconstruct and re-inscribe the same systems that are so 
harmful. I think that also can be a bit of an answer to Tanisha's earlier question, which is what do we do with those bad faith actors who ask, who try to hijack the term? What we can all do is learn more about what abolition means so that when all of us actually understand it in its fullness as a definition, then we can combat folks who offer us something, right, that's not what we understand abolition to be. Darion, here, would you like to weigh in as well? Yeah, so I mean, I think to start, I want to say that like abolition for me is not necessarily a solution, but an orientation to the way in which we do the work. And that there are a number of instances in which I feel like abolitionism is showing up in education um, in this contemporary moment. And so I can start with a few organizations in San Francisco. So if there are folks that are local to the area that want to find interlocutors, you have uh, Teachers for Social Justice, you have the Radical Educators Defending Schools Collective, York, there's the New York Collective of Radical Educators, and there's the Peer Defense Project, which is a, na a nationwide um, movement lawyering group that's working with youth in terms of being able to dismantle carceral lodges within schools. I work with a number of, of teachers that self-identify as abolitionist teachers, and they take on, I want to share a little bit of how they take on their work, and it may be an opportunity for us to think about ways in which it can be operationalized. Um, and so they do their work under the like mantra of defense, offense, and freedom dreaming. And so they feel like they defend themselves against policies and ways of thinking um, that currently harm people, um, starting by teaching their students that there aren't good and bad people, so they don't believe in getting rid of anyone, and that they're teaching their students that they have to work to undo systems like adultism, patriarchy, and racism, and other isms that may come to the fore. In terms of the offense, they do the work um, of teaching students that like liberation isn't done in an individual silo, but it is done as a collective. They begin teaching students on the offense and on the front end, again, like trying to dismantle the ways in which we think about how we relate to one another, that hurt people hurt people, and that we have to be able to break systems and cycles of harm. They're meeting the unmet needs of our current systems, like food insecurity, home insecurity, mental health services, and education. On the offense, they're also teaching their students that like reading and writing can be tools for freedom. And then finally, the, the final branch is this idea of freedom dreaming and thinking about the ways in which the small things and the small decisions that the students make on a day to day basis has an impact for the way in which they practice abolition. So they don't have to think of it as this large project that's unattainable. There are very small decisions about how they relate to one another, how they engage with one another that can embody abolitionism. And finally, beginning to have them think of new ways of being that others may not think is possible yet. And so really just allowing for them to like think in this, be in this mode of operation of freedom dreaming and of radical imagination. And starting with youth that are as you know young as elementary school and, and instilling some of those core ethics in them that they can hopefully carry on for the rest of their lives. And so the idea of like defensive, offensive, and dreaming is a way of being able to operationalize abolition in education. Thank you. Briefly, I want to go to Trisha McGinnis's question, who says, how can we apply or think about an abolitionist approach in ways that also protect and support healthcare workers of color? For example, sometimes the security presence in the ER protects workers of color, particularly women of color, and asks if we can learn lessons from education. I want to go to this one briefly to just say some of the work that's happening around police-free hospitals is talking about de-escalation training as a basic skill that every healthcare worker has that we have to know how to solve conflicts so that we don't turn to essentially the violence of the carceral regime. We don't threaten people with arrest. We don't threaten them with somebody who's going to come with a weapon. We don't threaten them with 
restraints as a way to control their behavior that we know how to control their behavior. So briefly, I answered that one, but I want to go back to this question about, is this something that we should be doing? Because Damon Francis has entered the chat and he hits with a very strong point, which is that if we don't take on the issues of social care and healthcare, do we get to keep 20% of the economy? So let's talk about this, right? The U.S. healthcare system, I think, is 17%, almost a quarter of our nation's GDP. All of us as taxpayers pay into a system that we know reliably produces time and time again racial health inequities, unequal outcomes for people based on your racial and ethnic group. And the folks who have the worst outcomes are Indigenous and Black folks. After the pandemic, we just found out that the life expectancy of all Americans have fallen, but Indigenous men have lost seven years of their lifespans as a result of the pandemic compounded upon all of the other inequalities their populations face. Black men have lost four years, Black women have lost three years. These are the greatest losses of any group in this country from groups who already had the shortest lifespans, right? If this isn't our work, whose work is it? So to that question, I'll also just briefly answer that. This is absolutely our work. And so what we're talking about isn't should we be doing this, but how should we be doing this? I want us to start thinking about how should we go about it? We've offered now that abolition is a tool for us to both critique the ways that our system has participated in anti-Blackness and white supremacist heteronormative violence. And so if we are going to change how our system runs, or think of a different system that could be in its place, how might we do that? So maybe we could start with, what even headspace do we need to be in to reimagine ourselves outside of such an unequal system? Because none of us have lived at a time when this system didn't exist. None of us haven't experienced a system like this. This is for all of us, all we know. How do we even put ourselves in a mind space to think outside of all we've experienced? Yeah, so I think this is a really important uh, uh, question. And I think the first step of thinking in abolitionist terms is decoupling safety and police. And that is to say that you have to get yourself in the mental and emotional mindset of decoupling the idea that one's personal and family and community safety is dependent upon the police. And that's something that we've been socialized into thinking since we were, you know, one day old. We were socialized to think that our safety is dependent upon these officers who will save us in the event of something tragic happening or will ensure the safety of our community so that nothing bad ever happens to us. And we have to just like, and, and this sounds simple and it sounds like something that we can just kind of say and automatically happen, but it's a process of decoupling those, those two things. And once you do that, you unlock possibilities for all types of decouplings in other areas, right? And so that's, I think, is the first thing you have to do is start kind of disassociating these terms that we've been taught to kind of bring together, uh, whether it's, a con it's in the context of policing and safety, whether it's in the context of healthcare and the presence of police officers, whether it's in the context of child safety and social welfare, or in the context of education and student resource officers, or education and other forms of punitive ways of insurance compliance within that institution. And so we had to, in a sense, kind of cognitively and emotionally prepare ourselves to go through the exercises and make these disassociations. And once you've done that, we can then start having a productive collective conversation about uh, reimagining these institutions in a way that thinks about safety in, uh, in terms that are mutually supportive 
and not dependent upon state actors uh, threatening people with loss of liberty? Yeah, I mean, I think when I hear the question, it makes me think of two guiding questions that we should all ask ourselves as we're doing our work. Is the decision that I'm making reducing the most amount of harm um, in whatever the situation or scenario may be? And then second, am I centering this person's humanity here? And I think that if we can use those two questions to guide the work and the like very day-to-day -day interactions that we may have and day-to-day -day decisions that we make, and even some of the larger structural decisions and really having that as a core part of our ethos is a way to like embody an abolitionist politic in a way that we haven't seen before. Those are not the questions that come to the fore when we make decisions. It's always more so profit over humanity and what are the ways in which we can continue to increase um, productivity. And so being able to like decenter those notions and be able to just center harm reduction, center humanity is a way forward um, in how I think about guiding my work in abolitionism. I love that. I wanna close this with some words from Derricka Purnell, again, becoming abolitionist, who says, rather than waiting for comforting answers to every potential harm ahead of us, let's plan, run, dream, experiment, and continue to organize, imagine, and transform this society toward freedom and justice without police and violence, and perhaps without racism in education and healthcare. I think, too often, we don't get about the work of abolition because we think of the things that'll come up in the way. We think of the barriers. We think, well, what will happen if we can't call security really quick to that patient's bedside? What will happen if we make healthcare free for everybody, if we put a clinic in everybody's community? What will happen if we don't rely on ERs in the same way? How will hospitals stay open if we don't have health insurance, right, to pay for whatever? Like, we think of all those things, and so we don't get about the work of actually planning for what it can look like when we don't need those things that we know are harmful. So I love the question that you've posed, Darian. I'll toss it to you guys for your final thoughts. How can we, as a group, plan, run, dream, experiment, and transform healthcare and social care to be more just so we all can live in a more free society? If there's one way, one way forward, there's many ways, right? But we're going to, each of you, offer one way. I think just keep having these conversations. I think we often want to have a big intervention that will automatically kind of transform these uh, situations. And I think we have to understand that part, a big part of this process is building relationships, having conversations, um, as I said earlier, meeting people where they are and being this for the, for the long haul. Um, that is to say that we have to be able to be patient and to uh, understand that every conversation we have is an opportunity to change people's hearts and minds. Um, and be able to do that work while also demanding the broader structural change that we've been talking about. So this is to say that these two things are not mutually exclusive. We can both take the large structural approach as well as the smaller incremental approach in terms of connecting with people so that we can, um, you know, fight this battle on multiple fronts. Darian, give us our final word, brother. Yeah, I think I would say that we have to decolonize the way in which we do our work. And so I think that it requires for us to be in community with one another in ways that we're not familiar with and to be able to identify authority of knowledge from people in communities in which have not been centered historically. And so I think about the work that I do in education, many of which I have community review boards. And so I have a panel of students, parents, community teachers, um, researchers from other institutions that can give us feedback along the way to have a checks and balances on like how we're doing the work in which we're doing and not presuming that I 
as a scholar, just because I'm sitting here at Stanford, has the ultimate authority on like where this project should go. And I think borrowing some of that, that community-oriented approach to the way in which we do our work in these other sectors would be a great way to embody abolition and to maybe even have some of this come up in social care and healthcare. That's right. The way to move forward is to turn to those we serve with love. Thank you guys so much for this powerful conversation. I hope it was as meaningful to all of y'all listening as it was to us to have it. Thank you for having us. This is the end. Thanks for listening to this Siren podcast episode. Andrew Fancouche does our editing and sound design. Nylon Thoe designed our cover art and Aurélien Jougla composed our music. Yuri Cartier, that's me, and Dylan Gonzalez produced this limited podcast series. Find out more by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.